And on this November 21st, we have four birthdays we're celebrating. Mary M. Coyle of Clear Lake, Shirley Ostrut of Osage, Linda Herman of Des Moines, and David Winnegar Sr. of Des Moines as well. So very happy birthday to Mary M., Shirley, Linda, and David. Hope you have a terrific birthday. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now we will turn to today's obituaries. Scott? Thank you, Pat. I'll start with the death notices first. We've got Kyle Jacobson, age 45, of Ames, who died on November the 18th. Grandin Funeral and Cremation Care is handling the arrangements. And David Miller, age 99, of Des Moines, died on November 14th, and the arrangements are being handled by the Cremation Society of Iowa. Now our obituaries first, Rex R. Beach of Ankeny died from temporal dementia and Parkinson's disease on Thursday, November the 16th, 2023. He is survived by his aunt Helen, his brother Carl, and sister-in-law Teresa, his loving wife Suvi, uh, his daughter Maggie and her husband Dan, his son Kyle and his wife Sarah, and his two grandchildren Nora and Wallace. A requiem mass service will be offered by Father Brad Johnson on Monday, November the 27th at 11 a.m. at the Merle Hay Chapel. In lieu of flowers, friends can make a contribution to the Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration, www.theaftd.org, in Rex's memory. More information may be found at www.merlehayfuneralhome.com. Next, from Altoona, Leon Madison Von Stein, age 90, passed away peacefully at Prairie Prairie Vista Village in Altoona on November the 15th, 2023. Leon was born on May 5th, 1933 in Creston, Iowa the son of Walter and Eleanor von Stein, and the third of six children. The family moved to Bondurant in the year 1939, and Leon graduated from Bondurant High School in the year 1951. He attended Iowa State University, receiving his draft notice during his second year. He spent over four years in the Air Force, where he became an air traffic controller. He married the love of his life, Joan Irene Grant, on June 26, 1955. They spent two years in Denver while he was stationed at Lowry Air Force Base before returning to Bondurant in the year 1957. Once back in Iowa, he began farming, a profession he enjoyed for 43 years. Leon was a lifelong member of Bondurant Christian Church, a 68-year member of Bondurant American Legion Post 396, past member of Bondurant Lions Club, and served on Christian Church Farmers Elevator and Bondurant for our school boards. Leon was preceded in death by his wife of 64 years, Joan, his parents, and brother, Dean. He survived by his son, Doug, of Louisville, Texas, and daughter, Lori, of Parkville, Missouri, 
grandsons Kevin Tran and Casey and Michael Von Stein, sisters Jean Zelensky of Scottsdale, Arizona, and Jerry Brumley of Warsaw, Missouri, and brothers Leo of Creston and Steve of Bondurant. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, November the 25th, 2023 at Bondurant Christian Church, 304 Grant Street S in Bondurant, with a visitation beginning at 9 a.m. Lunch will follow the service in the Church Fellowship Hall, and burial will take place at the Bondurant Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be directed to Bondurant Christian Church or American Legion Post 396. Online condolences may be expressed at www.hamiltonfuneralhome.com. And finally, Kathy Ray Lilly, of age 71, of Des Moines, passed away at her home on Saturday, November the 18th, 2023. She was born November the 24th, 1951, in Des Moines, to Ira and Pauline Hartley. Kathy loved cooking, music, reading, her cats, and spending time with her family. She loved to decorate for all holiday getting all holidays, getting her nails done and going all out on her fashion. Kathy is survived by her partner, John Cugsler, sons Ian Schreier and family, Ryan Schreier and family, Brandon Haffenbrack and Tyler Haffenbrack, stepson Chip Lilly, grandchildren Tyler Haffenbrack Jr., Haley Haffenbrack Jr., Hunter Haffenbrack, Jeremy Stevens, Benjamin Haffenbrack, Christopher Haffenbrack, her four great-grandchildren, her caretaker and friend Cassie Stevenson, sister Jill Daggett, and her loving cats Fred, Oscar, Spaz, and Ginger. She's preceded in death by her parents, husband, Ernest Lilly, grandson, Branson Haffenbrack Jr., Celebration of Life Visitation will be held 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Friday, November the 24th at 1015 Day Street in Des Moines, Iowa. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be directed to the Des Moines ARL. Online condolences may be expressed at www.islescares.com. Thank you, Scott. And we'll now uh, start the 50 states. This is a section in USA Today with uh, short stories in each of the 50 states plus the District of Columbia. The highlighted state this uh, day is uh, New Mexico and it's Dateline Albuquerque. It's been a long journey from one lone Mexican gray wolf from the forest to southeastern Arizona across the dusty high desert of central New Mexico to the edge of what is known as the Yellowstone of the southwest. Her paws have seen hundreds have been have seen hundreds of miles now over the last five months. Having reached Valles Cadera National Preserve in northern New Mexico, she has wandered far beyond the boundaries established along the Arizona New Mexico border for managing the rarest subspecies of gray wolf in North America. Federal wildlife managers have confirmed they have no immediate plans for capturing the lone female wolf named Asha but they will keep continue to track her movements. Now from Alabama and Decatur, an Alabama police chief said he believes department policies were violated when officers shot and killed a man during a dispute with a tow truck driver, but did not elaborate on what those policies were. From Anchorage, 
Two people were shot and killed Sunday night outside of Walmart in southern Anchorage, and police said they are searching for a suspect. Police found the bodies of a man and a woman behind two trucks in a parking lot near the store's entrance. A firearm was also found, police said in a statement. From Star Valley, Arizona, a tornado that hit the town of Star Valley prompted the National Weather Service's Flagstaff branch to survey damage to the area, the organization said. Officials from the town located about 95 miles northeast of Phoenix said at least 10 homes were damaged due to the wind, according to ABC 15 Arizona. Nobody was hurt in the tornado, but the gusts killed a dog, according to the TV station. From Little Rock, Arkansas, police are investigating after a man was killed in a shooting, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette reported. From Sacramento, demonstrators demanding a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war prompted California Democratic Party officials to cancel evening events during their state convention on Saturday for the safety and security of our delegates. From Denver in Colorado, as weary migrants arrive in Denver on buses from the U.S.-Mexico border city of El Paso, Texas, officials offer them two options— temporary shelter or a bus ticket out. Nearly half of the 27,000 migrants who arrived in Denver since November 2022 have chosen the bus, plane, or train tickets to other cities in the United States. From Bridgeport, a Connecticut judge there has set January 23rd as the date for a new Democratic primary election in the Bridgeport mayor's race after having tossed out the September election results because of alleged ballot box stuffing. In Wilmington, Delaware, council members settled on a weeks-long debate after approving a five-year residency law for new hires. The full council vote ended the back-and-forth over Wilmington's employee residency requirement, which came under scrutiny in October after Mayor Mike Persick's administration informed the legislative body that the city city no longer believed that residency law was on the books. From our nation's capital, the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Plant Hardiness Zone map was updated Wednesday for the first time in a decade, and it shows the impact that climate change will have on gardens and yards across the country. The map will give new guidance to growers about which flowers, vegetables, and shrubs are most likely to thrive in a particular region. Fort Myers, Florida, collapsed burrows. Alarmed neighbors, slow agency response, the destruction of a once thriving gopher tortoise community in Lehigh Acres typifies what's happening to the threatened species throughout southwest Florida, advocates say. The state wildlife agency finally put a halt to heavy equipment work on two adjoining Carbon and Carpenter Street properties, but not until a tractor had rolled over several tortoises' homes, likely trapping their occupants underground. From Stockbridge, Georgia, the last of the four men who escaped from a Georgia jail in October was caught Saturday, authorities say. In Hawaii, the Board of Water Supply officials said repairs are underway after a water main break caused flooding and triggered road closures. In Boise, Idaho, state wildlife officials want hunters to provide more samples in an effort to halt the spread of chronic wasting disease after finding an infected deer in a new area Boise State Public Radio reported, and from our neighboring state in Illinois and Chicago, federal safety officials investigating a Chicago commuter train crash that injured nearly 40 people when it slammed into snow removal equipment 
are focusing on a, quote, design problem, unquote, with its braking system. Scott? Thank you, Pat. On uh, other national news, shippers anticipate being able to meet holiday demand. This is written by David Sharp at the Associated Press. Carriers like the U.S. Postal Service, FedEx, and United Parcel Service have capacity to meet projected demand this holiday season, which is cheery news for shippers and shoppers alike. Like last year, there's expected to be little drama compared to struggles during the pandemic when people hunkered down at home and turned to online shopping while major carriers, including the Postal Service, simultaneously struggled with absences and a flood of parcel shipments. Louis DeJoy, Postmaster General, said the Postal Service goal is to make peak holiday season delivery superior and routine. All told, the parcel industry has a capacity to, of delivering more than 120 million parcels compared to a projected holiday peak of 82 million per day, slightly less than last year, said Satish Jindel from Ship Matrix. But shoppers shouldn't wait to last to the last minute. It's not a ticket to procrastination, he said. This is the all-important season for shoppers, and it accounts for more than half of annual sales for many retailers. Holiday retail sales are expected to increase between 3% and 4% in 2023, according to trade group the National Retail Federation. And Black Friday, followed by Cyber Monday, are some of the biggest shopping days of the season. The holidays are also a big moment for carriers. United Parcel Service is well on its way to hiring 100,000 people to meet the peak and is ready again to deliver the reliable service that customers depend on, said Jim Mayer, a company spokesperson. FedEx is also in the process of hiring for some locations, but is ready for the season, said Christina Meek, a spokesperson. Our employees around the world are ready to deliver for this year's peak season, she said. The U.S. Postal Service, meanwhile, hired 10,000 seasonal workers and completed the installation of about 150 package sorting machines since the last holiday season, which, along with other operational improvements, will expand its daily capacity to 70 million packages, officials said. FedEx and UPS are projected to have on-time performance in the mid to high 90s, and the Postal Service could reach the mid-90s as well, Jindal said. Shipping may be less costly for some retailers. The U.S. Postal Service, for example, opted against holiday surcharges, though FedEx and UPS both imposed surcharges for deliveries between now and January. Nonetheless, Jindel expects there to be about half as many shipments to be subjected to surcharges compared to last year, and some other rates are lower. And what's open and closed this year? The holiday season is here, which means spending time with family on Thanksgiving and also, for millions of people, hunting for the best deals on Black Friday. Thanksgiving is celebrated on the fourth Thursday in November each year, which takes place this week. A lot of national retailers are keeping the doors closed on Thursday to give employees time with families and to recharge for the holidays ahead. That includes some of the biggest chains like Walmart and Target, which plan to reopen stores on Friday. Here's a brief rundown of store hours on Thanksgiving, followed by a rundown of some of the country's biggest grocery chains. Stores that will be closed. Costco, Publix, Sam's Club, Target, and Walmart. CVS Pharmacy will be closing all non-24-hour locations early on Thanksgiving. 
You can call your local store or check store and pharmacy hours on the CVS Pharmacy website. Most Walgreens locations will be closed on Thanksgiving for the first time. However, nearly all 700 Walgreens 24-hour locations will remain open. Matt Kroger, most Kroger stores will close in the early evening on Thanksgiving. Grocery stores that will be open, Acme, Albertsons, Jewel Osco, Safeway, Tom Thumb, and Vons, for each, most stores will have adjusted hours. Major will be open 6 a.m. to 5 p.m. and Sprouts Farmers Market from 7 a.m. to 2 p.m. All Ralph's stores will be open on Thanksgiving, though most will close at 10 p.m. Pharmacies will be closed and grocery stores will be closed. Aldi, Fresco e Moss, Harvey's Supermarket, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, most will be closed, and Winn-Dixie. Pat? Thank you, Scott. Continuing with our 50-state rundown from Indiana and Indianapolis, a federal judge heard arguments Friday from lawyers for a group of Indiana residents from Haiti who are suing the state over a law that allows immigrants in the United States on humanitarian parole to get a driver's license, but only if they are from Ukraine. From our own state here in Iowa, Fort Dodge, former President Trump celebrated the win in a closely watched election case during a return visit to Iowa on Saturday, where he blasted his political foes and encouraged his supporters to not move past their grievances with President Joe Biden. From Topeka in Kansas, civil rights attorneys argue that a judge there should reverse their order banning the state from issuing new driver's licenses to transgendered people with a changed gender marker. From Louisville, the annual release of the Kentucky Youth Advocates Kids Count, uh, County Data Book shows improvement in economic security for Kentucky's youngest residents, but a far higher rate of children living without their families. From Venice in Louisiana, federal authorities said they're investigating a leak from an under, underwater oil pipeline off the coast of Louisiana. The National Transportation Safety Board said on X, formerly known as Twitter, that it has sent a four-person team to do a safety investigation to determine the cause of the leak about 19 miles offshore from Venice. From Maine in Lemington, a 62-year-old pilot suffered minor injuries when his plane crashed less than a mile from an airport following an engine failure. In Baltimore, four Baltimore police officers unleashed a barrage of deadly gunfire at a man who pointed a gun at them while fleeing, according to body camera recordings released by the department. The officers fired three dozen shots, officials said during a press conference at Baltimore Police Headquarters, where they played the recordings and presented the department's view of them. In Boston, the city paid $2.6 million to several black police officers to settle a long-standing federal discrimination lawsuit over a hair test used to identify drug use, lawyers for the officers said. In Michigan and New Buffalo, an Amtrak train heading to Chicago with 200 passengers derailed after striking an unoccupied vehicle and a tow truck, authorities said on Friday. In Minnesota, St. Cloud State University received approval from the state college and university system to expand online education programs for undergraduates. And in Jackson, Mississippi, the manager of the long-troubled water system in the capital city proposed a slight rate increase for most residents, alongside what he said is a first-in-the-nation proposal to reduce water rates for low-income people who get government help with grocery bills. Scott? 
I'll continue on with the 50 states and hear from Parkville, Missouri. The private park university is laying off faculty, cutting programs, and closing campuses after a sharp drop in enrollment that echoes what is happening nationally. From Big Fork, Montana, after 17 years in the U.S. Senate, Democrat John Tester is a well-known commodity in Montana. The 67-year-old lawmaker smiled and laughed his way through the crowd at a Veterans Day event in Big Fork, a small town on Flathead Lake where the population has surged in recent years. He chatted with veterans who supported him and some who didn't, then stood behind a lectern in the Big Fork High School gymnasium to promote his biggest recent accomplishment, expanded federal health care for millions of veterans exposed to toxic smoke at military burn pits. From Lincoln, Nebraska, the University of Nebraska Board of Regents said it wants to wants its next system president to lead for a decade or more, Lincoln Journal Star reported. From Reno, Nevada, Toyota is expanding a deal it inked with northern Nevada-based Redwood Materials to recycle and reuse battery materials for its hybrid and electrified vehicles. From Laconia, New Hampshire, police are investigating after a Democratic Party office in New Hampshire was vandalized with anti-Semitic graffiti and posters. From Trenton, New Jersey, New Jersey residents can get beer or wine delivered to their door just in time for the Thanksgiving weekend. State regulators approved permits for DoorDash and Instacart to deliver drinks last week, the Division of Alcoholic Beverage Control confirmed. The permits allow for deliveries only at residences and rule out college campuses, hotels, and BYOB restaurants. From Savannah, New York, A man on a hunting trip was shot and killed in western New York on Saturday, the first day of the state's regular deer and bear hunting seasons, authorities said. Raleigh, North Carolina, North Carolina Representative Tricia Coltham, whose party switch earlier this year blindsided state Democrats and gave Republicans veto-proof majorities in both legislative chambers, announced she will run for re-election. From Bismarck, North Dakota, Montana Nakota Utilities is asking state regulators for approval to increase customer rates for its natural gas services, Bismarck Tribune reported. From Waverly, Ohio, police say a woman is facing a child endangerment charge after her toddler found a gun in her purse and accidentally fired it in a southern Ohio Walmart store. And from Tulsa, Oklahoma, Two people were killed and three others were wounded when shots were fired early Sunday during an argument at a gathering at an Oklahoma home, police said. Portland, Oregon. Oregon's first-in-the-nation law that decriminalized the possession of small amounts of heroin, cocaine, and other illicit drugs in favor of an emphasis on addiction treatment is facing strong headwinds in the progressive state after an explosion of public drug use fueled by the proliferation of fentanyl and a surge in deaths from opioids, including those of children. From Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, several leading Pennsylvania universities that receive millions of dollars in state aid must publicly disclose more records about their finances, employment, and operations under legislation signed by Governor Josh Shapiro. Providence, Rhode Island, 
A study co-led by a Brown University researcher indicates that overdose prevention centers, like the one poised to open in Providence next year, do not lead to increased neighborhood crime rates. Columbia, South Carolina, Ron DeSantis has picked up 10 endorsements in South Carolina from former backers of Senator Tim Scott's presidential campaign. Support the, uh, they support the Florida governor is, is hoping he can shore up his strength in the first in the nation southern primary state as the 2024 GOP field continues to consolidate. Sioux Falls, South Dakota, more than three dozen professors at the University of South Dakota signed on to an open letter condemning Islamophobia and anti-Semitism in light of the ongoing Israeli-Hamas war. Memphis, Tennessee, lawyers for Memphis Grizzlies guard Jamaja Morant are allowed to argue that he was acting in self-defense as part of a lawsuit accusing him of assaulting a teenager during a pickup basketball game at the NBA star's house, a judge ruled. In Edinburgh, Texas, Donald Trump picked up the Texas governor's endorsement Sunday during a visit to a U.S.-Mexico border town and promised that his hardline immigration policies in a second presidential term would make Greg Abbott's job much easier Salt Lake City, Utah, the average Thanksgiving dinner in Utah will cost more than $100 this year, according to a new state-by-state comparison published by Casino.com after its new survey of 2,500 people who said they plan to host dinners this year. Burlington, Vermont, Beta Technologies, the electric aircraft manufacturer based in South Burlington, has been singled out by the Biden administration for a $169 million loan to help finance the company's new manufacturing facility at the Patrick Leahy Burlington International Airport. The 188,500-square-foot electric aircraft factory is expected to create hundreds of jobs as Beta ramps up to full production for its customers in cargo, medical, defense, and passenger industries. And finally, from Chesterfield, Virginia, a Virginia state senator who recently won re-election is facing a call for an investigation from her opponent and a lawsuit from several of her neighbors over whether she actually lives in the new district she represents. Pat? Yes, indeed. Uh, Finishing up here, Washington, uh, Port Orchard, a jury jury was seated in uh, Kitsap County Superior Court Thursday 4 is expected to be a lengthy trial for three men accused of murdering four members of the Cariege family in the greater Seabeck area in 2017. In West Virginia, Charleston, the West Virginia First Foundation, which will control the majority of the state's opioid settlement funds, held its first official meeting. From Wisconsin, Democratic Governor Tony Evers and political opponent Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss are in the rare position of taking the same side in a lawsuit seeking to end Wisconsin's taxpayer-funded voucher school system, telling the state Supreme Court that it should not take the case. And from Wyoming and Casper, the city's Wellspring Health Access will become the only abortion provider in the state after a clinic in Jackson announced its closure. For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Scott Splavek and Pat Steele. It's been our pleasure to read for you. Now we will take a short break to allow our next readers, Dale and Doug, to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are myself, Dale Finnegan, and my partner, Doug Kretzinger. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And now here's Doug with our next article. Thank you, Dale. Uh, first opinion on the uh, USA Today opinion page is written by Paul Costello. Rosalind Carter left her mark on America, and pa- Costello was assistant press secretary to First Lady Rosalind Carter from July of 1977 to January of 1981, and he's the person who wrote this. I have an indelible image of Rosalind Carter in my mind. She is sitting aboard an Air Force jet late at night, and everyone on the aircraft, staff, Secret Service, Air Force, stewards, journalists, is exhausted and asleep. We left Andrews Air Force Base before dawn, hitting three or four cities during the rough-and-tumble 1980 presidential election campaign. We were on our way to an overnight stop somewhere in the United States. Aside from the Air Force pilots, Mrs. Carter is the only one awake. As I open my bleary eyes, I see her face captured by the pin light from above her seat. She's mouthing words and quietly uttering phrases. At the end of a grueling day of handshakes, press conferences, meeting crowds, and local politicians, she's studying Spanish, a language she is determined to master. It is a picture of Rosalind Smith Carter, who passed away Sunday morning at her home in Plains, Georgia, at the age of 96, that I'll never forget. Disciplined, focused, dutiful, and resolute. I could never imagine Jimmy without Rosie, as he affectionately called his wife of more than 50 years. At age 75, asked to name the most important thing he had ever done, the 39th President of the United States and a 2002 recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize answered in two words, marrying Rosalind. A voice turned full political partner. A number of years ago, my wife and I attended a donor's event for the Carter Center in Atlanta. There was a trip to Plains where the Carter's still alive and an evening barbecue and square dance on the town's main street. It was homey and authentic and, like the Carter's, No flash, gimmicks, or glitz. The only cloud that evening was Rosalind's absence. The former president attended alone as Mrs. Carter was hospitalized in Atlanta. It came out later she was precariously close to death. Carter danced the first round with a random female partner, taking the appropriate steps from the collar. After that, he disappeared. The next morning, speaking to a group of us at his boyhood home just outside the center of Plains, he volunteered that he had retired early that night, or the night before, as he didn't feel right dancing with another woman with Rosalind not there. It was a sweet remark, touching for its manners, gentlemanly and old school, but no surprise. Whether it was his run for Georgia State Senate, his ill-fated congressional and gubernatorial races in 66 or his larger victories, first as governor of Georgia and then as president of the United States, this determined woman was always beside her husband as his political partner, writing letters, knocking on doors, making phone calls, extolling her husband's virtues and touting his experience. Through persistence, determination, and downright guts, 
She evolved from a novice campaigner who admitted to often being nauseous and trembling before a speech into a formidable presence on the international stage as First Lady. Lost in the years since the Carter presidency are details, big and small, that define Mrs. Carter's unique influence as First Lady. She traveled thousands of miles, domestically and internationally, representing her husband. <coughs> Excuse me. She relished taking on the challenges of presidential envoy, most notably on her first solo trip abroad on a groundbreaking tour of seven Latin American nations in June of 1977. There, breaking from the traditional social role of a presidential spouse, she met one-on-one -on -one with foreign leaders to advance the cause of human rights, a cornerstone of Carter's foreign policy. As First Lady, she became her husband's most fervent political evangelist, and it seemed as though she, always on, she was always on the road as marketer-in-chief for his administration. A powerful fundraiser in the 1978 midterm congressional elections and an intense campaigner, she was a vital ingredient in her husband's success as a politician. She liked nothing more than being a sounding board, traveling the country as Carter's eyes and ears and bringing him the unvarnished reality of the nation's temperature, warm or cold. On one such trip, the temperature might have been just a bit too hot. As the Air Force jet was leveling off at 35,000 feet, she relayed to us three, safe, uh, three staff traveling with her that she had just spoken to the president. I told Jimmy it's really rough out here. Inflation and the Iran hostages were taking their toll on this, his political fortunes. Everyone beating up on you. I've often surprised, I'm often surprised that Rosalind Carter is not seen as I see her and ranked higher for significance and substance as a first lady. To me, she broke new ground as a political partner and established herself as one of the nation's most influential presidential spouses. From the successes of her husband's campaign and her substantial efforts to reform the nation's fractured mental health delivery system to the momentous breakthrough in Israeli-Egyptian relations at the Camp David summit, Rosalind Carter was there. She was no more mere footnote as a presidential mate. Journalist Lawrence Wright, who wrote the play Camp David, about the 13-day summit that brought about the peace accords between Israel and G Egypt, told me, Mrs. Carter's influence at the Camp David summit is underappreciated. It was she who suggested that the president bring the parties to Camp David in the first place. Moreover, during the summit, she served as a kind of emotional back channel, especially for Egyptian President Anwar Sadat, who vented his frustration to her. End quote. The loss of the presidency to Ronald Reagan in 1980 was her period of extreme sadness. She couldn't imagine the American people would reject Carter and never believed he'd be defeated by the former actor whom she thought had neither the substance nor intellect to be president. In her autobiography, First Lady from Plains, she wrote that as election night in and a loss for Carter was inevitable, someone noted Carter's reserve. Mr. President, you're a great example. You don't seem bitter at all, Rosalind responded. I'm bitter enough for both of us. 
To be sure, she and her husband established a post-presidency that has been heralded as triumphant and historical. At the Carter Center, they brought major health advances to resource-limited countries around the globe, and her mental health advocacy was sustained and noteworthy. What I will remember is not a steel magnolia, as she often was called by the media, but a compassionate, intuitive, and insightful woman. Adventurous, too, and funny. From the kitchen window of their home in Plains, you could see the burial plots for both Mrs. Carter and the former president. The grassy field is land now run by the National Park Service. The 39th president of the United States will be laid to rest there amid a clump of bushes above a pond. Now his Rosie will be, too. Dale? The second opinion today comes from Trooper Sanders, who is CEO of the nonprofit Benefits Data Trust. The title of this opinion is Billions in Aid Await. We Can Do More to Help Students Apply. As many parents and students know, applying to college is never easy. But this school year promises a college application season we have uh, with more, excuse me, promises a college application season with more uncertainty and change than we have seen in years. First, the Supreme Court ruled this summer that colleges can no longer explicitly use race as criteria for admissions. Second, standardized testing remains in question as more and more colleges and universities retain pandemic-era policies that eliminated SAT and ACT requirements. And thirdly, add in the uncertainty brewing around major changes to the federal financial aid application, and an already complicated system may get much harder for the class of 2024. This is no small thing. Education is a prime driver of success in the workforce. Americans holding a bachelor's degree are more likely to find employment and earn a third more in salary once they do, according to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. College is the greatest lever we have to break the cycle of poverty, provide opportunity, and put families on a path to prosperity. We owe it to our future workforce and our nation to provide a fair and fathomable college admission system. It must be simple and straightforward to access the financial aid needed to make college affordable for all. As many families know, the journey to fund college often begins with a bit of government arcana known as FAFSA, F-A-F-S-A, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid Form. It unlocks the door to billions of dollars in Pell Grants and other assistance that makes higher education affordable for millions of students. FAFSA is so important that a growing number of states are considering completion of the form a requirement for high school graduation. But the form can also be an obstacle. Last year, four in every ten high school students failed to complete it, leaving almost $3.6 billion in Pell Grants unused, according to the National College Attainment Network. And that doesn't even include all the other doors the FAFSA opens, including grants and scholarships from states, private and nonprofit organizations, and colleges themselves. This year, the FAFSA form, 
submission process, and eligibility formula, we'll have significant updates, changes that by all accounts are smart and welcome. But the simplified form won't be available until December, two months later than its usual release. As such, students who want to start college next fall have a shorter window to apply for financial aid before they must decide which college to attend. Here's why that matters. Last year, more than 4.5 million students submitted their application between October and December. Compounding the problem is that there simply are not enough college counselors and advisors to help high school students navigate the college application process. The American School Counselor Association reported in 2019 that the average ratio of students to counselors in high school was 311 to 1. That means about 1 in 5 students, 11 million total, were enrolled in a school without enough help. Another study by the National Association for College Admission Counseling found that only a third of public high schools had a counselor helping with college admissions. While that is heartbreaking, data shows that this is an area where technology can make a difference. In 2019, Benefits Data Trust created a free tool to help students navigate the FAFSA form by answering their questions and providing reminders all via text message. The goal was to give high school seniors an intuitive tool that fits into their lifestyle. Put another way, we wanted to enable an 18-year-old to get answers about financial aid while they sit up at 1 a.m. using only their phone. It worked better than we could have imagined. The tool, known as Wyatt, uses artificial intelligence-powered chat to answer student questions. It has helped more than 30,000 students complete the FAFSA form, connecting them with almost $40 million in federal grant aid. Controlling for several demographic factors, including race and parental education, we found that 45% of students using Wyatt completed their FAFSA forms compared with 15% of similar students who did not use the tool. Perhaps more inspiring was that low-income students were 34% more likely than their peers to fill out the FAFSA with Wyatt than they were without it. To help students on this year's shortened timeline, we released the latest version of Wyatt this month, and we hope it will continue to help thousands of students operating without resources to continue their education. For all the improvements that have been made in recent years, college applications can still be a laborious process. And that's before you figure out how to pay for it. We ask a lot of students who are working hard in the classroom every day. We should make sure they have the right tools to succeed. And again, that opinion was from Trooper Sanders, CEO of the nonprofit Benefits Data Trust. And uh, Des Moines Sports, Des Moines Register Sports section. I'm going to read this article written by Dargan Southard. Number two, Hawkeye women bounce back with Drake blowout. And the dateline, or the dateline is Iowa City. For as out of place as Thursday's Iowa women's basketball performance was, Sunday's follow-up effort firmly put the Hawkeyes' potent product back on the floor. 
Number two, Iowa barreled out of the gates against Drake with the most first-half points in program history, leaning on that momentum to create a balanced scoring effort that eased any lingering concerns from the Kansas State dud. The final scoreboard reading was a 113-90 Iowa victory that sends the Hawkeyes 4-1 into Thanksgiving week on a solid note. Coach Lisa Bluter challenged us when we came to practice after the K-State loss, said Iowa superstar Caitlin Clark, who had 35 points, 10 assists, 7 steals, and 6 rebounds in 30 minutes. I thought everyone responded really well, she said. It was fair to wonder whether Iowa's 58-point effort against the Wildcats signaled a significant stumble, given how unusual it is for the Hawkeyes to experience any sort of offensive problems. Clark and company emphasized Sunday how much of an anomaly uh, that showing truly was. Thursday's lasting scene was Clark running around searching for help. She received plenty of it against the Bulldogs, while also herself becoming the NCAA's career leader in 30-point games, 39. Headlining the contributing list was senior Kate Martin, who poured in a career-high 25 points after going scoreless against the Wildcats. She spliced home 10 of 12 shots while draining three trays, her first downtown connections, following eight straight misses to begin the year. Although it had been a seesawing beginning to Martin's final collegiate campaign, she looked like the veteran piece Iowa needs on Sunday. All week my teammates have been building me up, Coach Bluter. All the coaches have been building me up, Martin said. It's not fun to... It's not fun to not make a three in the first three or four games. But really, it was just coincidence. I'm just glad I could step up tonight and knock them down. Elsewhere, Molly Davis picked up her third start in five games and responded well with 10 points in 27 minutes while draining a pair of trays. And 15 points from Sharon Goodman provided a pivotal lift with Hannah Stuckey playing just 13 minutes while dealing with a minor knee issue. She just has a little bit of a knee injury. That's bothering her a little bit. Not bad, Bluter said. But we felt like with the way Drake runs around, you really have to work on defense. With four games in eight days this week, if we could give Hannah some rest, this was an opportunity to do so. I was first hit to, Iowa first hit the gas with a 12-0 and surge to end the first half which transformed a modest 11-point advantage into a comfortable 64-41 halftime cushion. To Taylor McCabe, Trey's arrived during that run on assists from Clark, offering up a microcosm of the offensive balance the Hawkeyes desperately needed. Iowa's second half lead rarely dipped below 20. Drake had moments of success Sunday, but couldn't match the Hawkeyes' firepower. Grace Berg led the Bulldogs with 19 points and got double-digit assistance from Katie Dinnebuyer, 15, Anna Miller, 15, Courtney Becker, 10, and Taylor McCauley, 10. I think there's big things ahead for this Bulldog squad, Drake coach Allison Pullman said. We put our best foot forward. We adjusted as the game went on. I still feel like it's a great day to be a Drake Bulldog. Well, Iowa travels to Estora, Florida, to play IPFW on Friday in the Gulf Coast Showcase, followed by Saturday and Sunday games in the same event. Drake now readies for its Thanksgiving week action at home against Louisiana Tech Friday, Richmond on Saturday, and Maine on Sunday. 
Iowa needed this rebound victory in the worst way. Hawkeyes got it with ease. People want to beat you, Clark said. You're the Iowa Hawkeyes. You were in the Final Four last year. You have a target on your back, but this group just worries about what's in our locker room. We knew Thursday wasn't who we are. Tonight, we got back to who we are. Here's a little bit of what's on TV if you're looking to watch some sports tonight. Um, The American uh, AHL Hockey at 6 p.m. is Lehigh Valley at Toronto. Um, For college football, there are a couple of games at 6 p.m. tonight on ESPNU. You can catch Bowling Green at Western Michigan. And at 6.30 p.m. on ESPN2, the football game is Eastern Michigan at Buffalo. There is a couple of NBA basketball games on tonight as well. At 6.30 on TNT, Cleveland at Philadelphia. And then at 9 p.m. on TNT is Utah at the L.A. Lakers. Um, And let's see. I'll give you just a little bit of a recap here of Northern Iowa Wrestling, which boasted five champions at the Dactronics Open. Northern Iowa wrestlers traveled to South Dakota for the Dactronics Open at South Dakota State University on Sunday. The Panthers crowned five weight class champions and won the team championship. Among the notable teams in attendance were the Jackrabbits of South Dakota State and a handful of wrestlers from Minnesota and Iowa State. Kale Happel, Adam Allard, Ryder Downey, Jared Sima, and Wyatt Volker were UNI's individual champions. Trevor Anderson finished third at um, 125 pounds, outpacing teammates Bowen Downey and Brandon Paez. Anderson looks to have the advantage at 125, as UNI looks to replace Kyle Gallhofer after his injury. Same goes for Allard and Ryder Downey in their classes, who outperformed their teammates to keep a hold on their starting spots. Ryder Downey is particularly a surprise, defeating teammate RJ Weston 3-0 in the final. And now that brings us to Dear Abby. The headline of the column today is, Boss has taken advantage of employees' kind offer. The first letter says, Dear Abby, My boss, who recently separated from her husband and is getting divorced, has moved within walking distance of work. The problem is she can't drive, and her daughter needs to be taken to and from school. I offered to help her out with her daughter, but now she's asking me to take her everywhere she needs to go. I have been accommodating and have done this for a couple of months, but she has never offered me any money toward gas in my car, even though she's always bragging about all the things she has ordered off the internet. I never offered to be her chauffeur. I work third shift, which is hard enough, and have my own child to take care of during the day. How can I tell her it's got to stop without hurting her feelings? I am getting close to losing control and telling her off. Everyone I know is advising me to stop and that she's just using me. Signed, Used in the Midwest. Dear Used, explain to your boss, politely, that you were glad to help her out temporarily by making sure her child had transportation to and from school. But you have responsibilities outside of work that preclude you from continuing to serve as her chauffeur. Then tell her that if you are going to continue driving her child... You will need to be reimbursed for the fuel you expend doing it, something she seems to have forgotten. 
Speaking up is not rude or hurtful. It's called being assertive. A second letter says, Dear Abby, should I be upset that my grandchildren have a step-grandfather who has no children of his own and is always giving money and other gifts to my grandchildren? I bought my 18-year-old grandson a used car with the understanding that he would repay me in installments when he started working. He did just that, and then he had a fender bender, so I helped him get it partially repaired. I made the same deal with him as before. I paid for the repairs. He again repaid me in installments. Well, one of the doors has a large dent and won't open. Now he has sweet-talked his step-grandfather into shopping for another car. My grandson doesn't want to fix the door because it's easier to get his step-grandfather to buy him another car. Should I be upset about this? What should I tell his step-grandfather? Signed, Frustrated Grandfather. Dear Grandfather, I can see why you would be concerned. You have been trying to not only help your grandson, but also to teach him responsibility. His well-meaning step-grandfather is interfering with that. By all means, have a discussion with him because step-grandpa is being manipulated. If he really wants to help your grandson, he should consider treating him to driving lessons. And I'm going to give you a little weather recap before we finish up here. Today's high in Des Moines is expected to be 44, the low tonight 24, which is pretty normal. Normal high is 46, normal low is 28. The sun rose today at 7.10 a.m. and sunset at 4.50 p.m., which I'm sure everyone is very well aware of. It will be breezy today with clouds and sun, a couple of showers in the west in the morning, winds north-northwest from 12 to 25 miles per hour, and then mainly clear tonight. Well, that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. I'm Dale Finnegan, and my partner at the microphone has been Doug Kretzinger. Earlier, you heard Pat Steele and Scott Splavik. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs>